Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke. As you see, uh, if you look there, we're almost to the end of this gospel, only a few verses left. So it's tempting for me, always wanting to move on to the next thing, to just uh, deal with this in one sermon and see where we go next. But these final verses actually have uh, focus on three different things that makes one sermon sound like three little sermons crammed together. So I've decided that rather than one long three-point sermon, uh, we'll take the time to look at each of these last things one at a time, which brings us then this morning to verses 36 to 43. Let me read it. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece, of bro- a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it. He took it and ate it in their presence. And there will end our reading. I'd like to set before you today two uh, simple but uh, closely related truths. The first is simply this, that Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus really rose from the dead. We, we like to have things confirmed by more than one person before we believe it. That's not necessarily cynicism, it's just common sense. One person might be confused or, or might have some ulterior motive, but having several eyewitnesses to the same event gives us some certainty. So that's true on a personal level in our family. If your three-year-old tells you something, it's really comforting if you also hear it from your 12-year-old. You feel like it's confirmed. It's, it's true in the responsible news agencies. Responsible journalists do not report a story that they heard from just one source. They want to hear confirmation from somewhere else. And it's true in our justice system. The he said, she said cases are very weak. Courts are looking for multiple eyewitnesses to confirm what's true. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus really rose from the dead, there ought to be multiple confirming accounts. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what we have. There we're given a list of uh, the uh, uh, risen Christ's appearances and those who saw him. Let me read some of it. He appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, says Paul. Paul was presenting evidence to help us understand and believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Well, that's also what's going on in our text this morning. 
Here Luke focuses, though, on just one of those appearances. Jesus appearing to the the apostles on the evening of the resurrection, probably in the upper room where they had eaten uh, the Last Supper, though we don't know that for certain. So let me put this account in the context of that whole day. That uh, at first light, that Sunday morning, a group of women returned to Jesus' tomb where they had seen him buried on on Friday uh, evening. But his body was gone. And the angels announced, he's not here. He's risen. Well, they ran back to tell the apostles. So Peter Peter and John ran to the tomb and went inside, and we're told that seeing the grave clothes there caused John to believe. After Peter and John returned home, Mary Magdalene lingered around the tomb. Uh, but as she wept, Jesus appeared to her, calling her by name. She was so dumbstruck that at first she thought it was the gardener. But when she understood it was Jesus, she ran back to tell the others too. Sometime during that morning, the Lord appeared to Simon Peter. We're not told the details of that, but we're told in two different places that that happened. Then, as we saw last week, as the afternoon wore on, two disciples uh, headed home to the town of Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked and talked along the road, Jesus joined them and talked to them about the events of the day. They didn't recognize him at first until he broke bread with them. And they saw who this was. Well, realizing who it was, he, they, they hurried the seven miles back to, to Jerusalem to tell the others, the eleven and those uh, gathered with them. And they found them all gathered behind locked doors, probably in fear, trying to make some sense out of all the reports that they heard that Jesus was alive again. And so the disciples from Emmaus gave testimony to what they had seen and heard as Jesus walked and talked and ate with them. At that point, we come to our text. With all of those accounts, we come now to our text, where suddenly, apparently with the door still closed and locked, the eleven and the other disciples with them crowded into this room, Jesus appeared there in their midst. As you can guess, they were startled and frightened not sure what they were seeing. But Jesus spoke peace to them and began to confirm in practical ways that he really had risen from the dead. Now before we get into the details of what happened in that upper room, let me just raise the question, how important is it that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? After all, there are lots of people who believe Jesus was a great man, a great teacher, but they do do not believe that he rose from the dead. So does that resurrection really matter? Well, yes, it does. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. If he did not, the Bible is not trustworthy. It doesn't tell us the truth. Jesus boldly claimed to have risen from the dead. If he had not risen, he lied to us. We ought not think him a great man. You see, it's not an inconsequential matter at all. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Oh, it matters. It matters. But Jesus really did rise from the dead. God confirmed it to us in the same way we confirm things, by multiple eyewitness accounts. He did not just give two or three witnesses as the Old Testament law uh, uh, required. He gave us dozens, hundreds of witnesses that we might know for sure. But in this particular text in Luke 24, the Holy Spirit has a very specific concern, which brings us to our second point. The risen Christ is not a ghost. The risen Christ is not a ghost. Do you believe in ghosts? Some do, some don't. I found a CBS News poll from a few years ago that said nearly half of Americans say they believe in ghosts or that the dead can return in certain places and situations. That's really not surprising, for as in ancient Greek culture, the people to whom Luke was writing, we too, in our culture, tend to believe in the immortality of the soul. That when the body dies, the soul goes on living, moving around, perhaps, doing something. So that an encounter with the realm of the dead, with a ghost, with a spirit long gone, such an encounter may be an unsettling prospect, but for most people, it's possible. But the risen Jesus is not a ghost. That's the whole point of Jesus' encounter with the disciples that resurrection evening. To demonstrate to them that he is not a ghost. Fred Craddock points out that though there are many similarities between this incident and the Emmaus story incident that we talked about last week, the theme is completely different. Here, the point is the corporeality or the bodily being of the risen Christ. The disciples were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen the ghost, but Jesus was there to show them otherwise. So Jesus offers two proofs. First, he offered his body to them for examination. He showed them his hands. He showed them his feet. 
We know from John's account that his hands had nail scars and his feet had nail scars. He invited them to touch him. In John's gospel later, he invited Thomas to put his fingers in the nail prints and to stick his his hand up in the spear scar in Jesus' side. Jesus was making a point that ghosts do not have flesh and bones as he had. If you encounter a ghost and you try to hug it, you get arms full of nothing. But Jesus is not a ghost. They touched him. He had flesh and bones. Secondly, Jesus asked his disciples for something to eat. They looked around and gave him a a piece of fish. And he stood there and ate it. But ghosts don't eat food. They're ghosts. Which again makes the point, Jesus is not a ghost. The point is, the Bible does not teach the immortality of the soul. That when people die, their souls continue to live, roaming about, doing whatever they do. The Bible does not teach that. That is a pagan Greek idea. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the body. And Jesus' resurrection was the first such event. He was not the first person who had been brought back to life after being dead. Both Old and New Testament record several instances of that. People being resuscitated back to life long after CPR would have helped. But Jesus wasn't resuscitated to his old life. He was resurrected with a transformed, immortal body. In other words, the disciples were not encountering, as they feared, they were not encountering someone from the realm of the dead. They encountered Jesus alive in a risen, glorious, immortal body. Now, let's be honest. That raises really, really difficult questions for us. N.T. Wright describes the problem pretty well when he writes, what sort of body did Jesus have? How could it, at the same time, be solid and real with flesh and bones and able, able to eat baked fish and demonstrate that it wasn't a ghost, and also to appear and disappear, apparently at will, and in the end be carried up into heaven? Just what sort of body are we talking about? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses our dilemma in 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes a point, makes two points, that the resurrection body of Jesus is the same body that died, but that at the same time, it's a new kind of body that rose. He he contrasts, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, he contrasts the natural body with the resurrection body in several ways. The natural body is earthly. The resurrection body is heavenly. The natural body is perishable. The resurrection body is imperishable. 
The natural body is weak. The resurrection body is powerful. The natural body is natural. The resurrection body is spiritual. The natural body is mortal. The resurrected body is immortal. Now that's a good contrast, but even that contrast presents us a problem. For when we read that the resurrection body is spiritual, we assume, aha, that means he's really a disembodied spirit. A ghost, not human flesh. So let me explain this word spiritual. This is a hard problem. I've struggled with a bit and I've studied some this week to try to satisfy my own understanding. Let me explain what it means. The word spiritual. Resurrected in a spiritual body. The word is not the noun, the Greek noun pneuma, which means spirit. That's not the word. That's the word, actually, used in verse 37, and again in verse 39, translated ghost. Jesus said, I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't eat. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Spirit, ghost, that's that word, pneuma. Instead, the word spiritual, when it talks about resurrection body as a spiritual body, is the adjective pneumatikos. Pneuma plus ikos. Pneumatikos. Here's how Wright explains the difference. Greek adjectives that end in kos do not describe the substance out of which something is made. They describe the force animating the thing in question. Not the substance out of which something is made, but the force that drives that something. He says it's the difference between saying on one hand, this is a wooden ship and this is a steel ship. That's talking about the substance out of which they're made. Or saying on the other hand, this is a nuclear powered ship and this is a steam powered ship. That's talking about uh, the, the, what powers the ships, not what they're made of. They're both ships. That's the sort of adjective that this word spiritual is. The body is not of the substance of a spirit, but it is a spirit-powered body, though a body of flesh and bones nonetheless. Let me give you another example straight out of the biblical text. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there we find this same adjective, spiritual. It says they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. When they ate the manna that God provided, and when they drank the water from the rock. Now I ask you, was that real food and water? Or was it imaginary food, intangible food? Invisible food, spirit food. Oh no, it was real food. They ate it for 40 years and it sustained them. But it was food provided by the Spirit of God, not by their own bread making and well digging. So, what's the contrast then in 1 Corinthians 15 between the natural body? And the spiritual body. Again, listen to Nancy Wright. 
The word he uses for natural cannot mean physical. I'm not talking about physical body and spiritual body. That's not it. It cannot be physical. It's a bizarre translation to say physical there. That first word, natural, is a word formed out of the word psyche, which means soul. The point is that our, the pre, our present body is a body animated by the ordinary human soul. And the future resurrection body is a body animated by God's spirit, hence not corruptible and immortal. But the resurrection body is a body, nonetheless, just as manna was real food. God takes the stuff of our old, earthly, mortal, corruptible body and makes out of it a new kind of body that is fit for heaven, incorruptible and immortal. Now that may sound strange to your ears, for you and I are accustomed to hearing about people dying for their spirit to become part of the one great spirit of the universe. The breeze on your cheeks, the butterfly that lights on your head, such nonsense. That kind of new age thinking is just old Greek paganism. But in contrast, throughout its whole history, the Christian church in all her creeds has confessed that Jesus rose from the dead with the same body, albeit renewed, that they put in the tomb. And that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So again, what difference does this make? Well, let me at least give you two answers to what difference it makes. First of all, it's important to affirm that the Jesus we know now is the same Jesus who lived on the earth and died on the cross. Fred Craddock has a wonderful observation about this. He said, if the Jesus who died belongs to the historical past, but the one disciples now follow is the eternal Christ, then the Christian life can take on a form of spirituality that is without suffering for others, without a cross, without any engagements of issues in life of this world, while all the time expressing devotion to a living spiritual Christ. But the Gospels say no to that kind of discipleship. And I think we can observe that as belief in the resurrection of the body has disintegrated into belief in simply the immortality of the soul, Christian spirituality has also disintegrated into some otherworldly, intangible thing which Jesus would not even recognize. It matters that Jesus is not a ghost. And there's a second reason why this matters. 
Our understanding of the resurrection of Jesus will form our understanding of our own resurrection and our hope for the whole creation. The idea that we become angels or spirits floating in the sky somewhere distorts the hope that God gives us in his word. God's word speaks of a renewed creation, of the whole creation groaning, waiting to see the sons of God in their resurrection bodies. A new heaven and a new earth. It sounds like paradise restored. Eden given back again. The curse removed forever. In fact, the final picture in the last chapter of Revelation, read it sometime, it looks a lot like the first two chapters of Genesis before sin came on the scene. It matters a lot. God made us human beings, not angels, Not spirits, human beings, body and soul. And he put us in a beautiful, physical creation that he made. And that's what we can expect in the future. We will be renewed humans in a renewed creation, not some other absurd kind of being. How do we know? Look at Jesus, the risen Jesus is not a ghost. Not a ghost. This week we heard the great physicist Stephen Hawking declare that there is no heaven or afterlife. He says it's a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. Our minds are but computers. When they wear out, we're done. There's no new life for broken down computers. Hawking's a brilliant scientist. He's one of the smartest people alive, I suspect. So should we believe him? I probably would. He's a lot smarter than me. Except that Jesus says otherwise. Jesus said of his own body, You destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And he said of those who believe in him, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And unlike Stephen Hawking, who doesn't even believe such a thing could happen, Jesus not only promised it in advance, Jesus rose from the dead. So who are you going to believe? The smartest man on the earth or the one who rose from the dead? I don't know about you. My hope's in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, so much we don't understand. We feel foolish trying to describe things beyond our comprehension. Sounds like the things of science fiction. Although so many things of science fiction have become reality even in our lifetime. So may we not 
think we're so smart as to say you cannot do what you promised to do, especially when you brought Jesus back from the dead and gave us such confirming eyewitness accounts. Oh, Father, we don't understand it all. But give us faith to trust you and hope, Lord, to look forward to the day when the curse is gone and the injustice and the pain and the suffering and the sin and the, and, and, and the trouble is removed from your creation. Oh, Father, may we live in light of that day and be careful what we build and be careful who we serve, knowing that you hold our future in your hands. Thank you for your word, Lord, that enlightens us way beyond anything we could figure out, no matter how smart we are. May we listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.